Romans chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we're grateful for your promise to allow the gospel of your son, the gospel that's all about your son, to be unchained from its traditional chains and from its contractual Western understanding. That's one of our goals, and our goal then is that we may see Jesus. And that's what it's all about. That's who it's all about. We ask now that you'll open the eyes of our understanding, which only you can do, because we are, even in Christ, without efficacy in ourselves. So we thank you for your grace and for the giftedness of faithfulness, and most of all, for the unspeakable gift of your Son. In his name we ask these things and approach your word with confidence. Amen. The general idea tonight is, is a twofold description of the gospel, immediacy and immensity, or let's put immensity first. Immensity, grasping the vastness of the gospel, and immediacy in which we have the intimacy of the gospel, the immediacy of the presence of God in our lives, so, see, I can't do this and think at the same time, so my spelling is wrong. That's okay. Immensity and immediacy of the gospel. Paul expounds a salvation which is both immense and immediate in his epistles. And what we're going to learn as we see the gospel unchained this year is that all categories of soteriology, if we're going to be theological, all categories of soteriology or salvation are redefined and revealed to be Christological doctrines. The doctrine of salvation is intensely Christological. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about us being in Christ. It's participative. It's mystical in the sense of a mystery. It's transformative. It's liberative. It's not contractual, but covenantal. It's about divine initiation, divine determination, divine will to complete what he begins in the believer. It's about radical incapacity on the part of man, not man's capacity. Therefore, it's Christocentric, not anthropocentric. It's not rationalistic. It doesn't credit man with the ability by contemplation of the cosmos, become ethical, and by rejection of natural theology, become unethical. It's about the radical incapacity of man that demands the unconditional action of God toward man in grace. And so we'll have a new appreciation about just what grace means, utter grace, pure grace, sheer grace, its vastness, and its immediacy. So again, Paul expounds a salvation that's both immense and immediate. The immensity of the salvation, which we saw in Revelation, is going to be complemented by the immediacy of that salvation, which we see in passages like Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, and in a passage we'll look at tonight, Romans 5 also, in which both the immediacy and the immensity of that salvation is revealed. The immensity of the salvation wrought by God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit acting in an interlocking way is disclosed in such passages as Romans 3.26, make that 3.21 to 26, by way of anticipation 
of Romans 5 through 8. It's revealed in Romans 5, 1 through 21, and in Romans 8, 19 to 39, the immensity of that salvation. The immediacy of the salvation is denoted in Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, 1 through 15, and other passages. The immediacy of the salvation, then, means that the person in Christ, a phrase that Paul repeats scores of times throughout his Pauline corpus, en Christo, in Christ, the salvation, the immediacy of the salvation, is denoted in this phrase, in Christ. The person in Christ who has been placed into Christ, therefore is immediately or personally related to the Father through the Son, and to the Son by the Spirit, and to the Spirit in the Father and the Son. The true unchained gospel not only tends to do this, but dramatically portrays the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he reveals God as God. The contractual arrangement, the one that's been popular since the Reformation, and the so-called justification theory, as Campbell put it, is, tends to downplay or not even really disclose the divinity of Christ. That's why he calls it an Arian system after Arius rather than an Athanasian system, which is after Athanasius, who is not only uh, the staunch defender of the divinity of Christ in the Nicene era, but he was also a very staunch universalist in terms of a Christological salvation. So we'll say, along with Campbell, that the rendition of the gospel that we're going to put forth is Athanasian in its view, and that Athanasius was, of course, anticipated in Paul because Paul preceded him, and not Arian in its view. It is not anti-Jewish in its sentiment, as the Reformation onward and Western construal of this tends to be. Paul is never combating the Jew in Romans. He is combating a Jew, a teacher, who again comes out of the shadows as we approach the Romans 1 through 4, that Romans, as I'm, I'm dealing with it, is a dialectic of contradictories. It presents two things that are not in creative tension, two things that don't reveal a confusion in Paul, but two things that reveal a radical and irreconcilable distinction of two separate Gospels. So we're fighting a battle on two fronts this year, which is why it's going to take, I think, a few hundred hours to really bring this home. We're fighting the battle of the teacher, which Paul anticipates the arrival of in Rome, against Paul's Gospel, which was, Paul, I think, indicated him as a messenger of Satan who went everywhere Paul went, and tried to dissuade people from the gospel and from the one who called them into the grace of Christ. The second thing we're after, and it's much more up-to-date on the level of our own time, is to combat the justification theory, which is really not the best term for it, but it's a contractual view of the gospel in which there are stipulations and conditions placed on man. I may very soon, as maybe as soon as Sunday, I don't know, because there's a lot of things jumbling around, I may ask, where's the condition? Where is the condition? 
that Paul requires. The term faith alone is not in the scripture. It was invented by Melanchthon in the Reformation period because he, and you can see why that happened. It was taken up by Luther and by others. Faith alone, meaning, okay, we won't say that we can earn our salvation, but we can say there's a condition for appropriating salvation and it's faith, but it's faith alone. They want to be very clear about that. But the scripture reveals a gospel that has no conditions at all. So I ask the question, when is a person placed in Christ? The answer to me is in Galatians 1.12, when God is pleased to reveal his son to a person. When he's pleased to reveal his son to a person, as he did to Paul, then there is a transfer, a transformation that happens. And then the person is able to look from being in Christ backwards. So the new and the, the proper perspective of the gospel is a retrospective, not a prospective one. It, the justification theory presents a gospel in which first you look at the, the cosmos, contemplating the cosmos. If you sort of pass that first test through your rational capacity, you get an idea of what ethics are, and then God sent that sees positive signals, as some say it, and therefore he then obligates himself to give you the gospel because you met a stipulation of recognizing his divinity through creation and even ethical things because God gives these people over to unethical behaviors if they don't recognize and give thanks and are thankful. So again, this other gospel tends to view a prospective view that first there's the contemplation of the cosmos, then there is the positive signals toward the gospel, then God leads you along and brings you through the idea that you can't keep the law, even if you're a pagan, you're supposed to realize this. You get desperate and God lowers the bar so you can just believe. And this makes us rethink a lot of things that we've done before. And my question again is, if it's positive signals that God obligates himself to, then where are the positive signals in Saul of Tarsus? For when God was pleased to reveal his son to Saul of Tarsus, he was motivated by murder. He was breathing out how he was going to kill and destroy this group of people called Christians, which he, re which he referred to as an apostasy and as a heresy and as a blasphemy worthy of what happened to Stephen. Not you, Steve. You're paying attention. If you weren't, we'd have to discipline you but i'm only kidding look he's he's ready to take it now i can do this can i good that's one of the trainings that i have for my children and grandchildren is torment them until they give it back and by the time they give it back i say well it's time for you to leave the house now you can you can handle your life so it's retrospective when god was pleased to reveal his son to Saul of Tarsus there was of course what some people call a conversion but it was more than that it was a call from God and a dramatic transformation occurred in him and therefore this salvation includes this transformation it isn't a salvation followed by a transformation because you're progressively sanctified that's not it either so we're looking at a gospel that's not contractual bilaterally but covenantal, unilaterally, where the determination is from God, the initiation, 
And the getting in and staying in is all about God. It's not meeting requirements. It's not meeting stipulations. And so faith has to be construed under the true unchained gospel as a gifted participation in Christ's faithfulness. The use of faith or the faith of Christ is determined by its first use in Romans 1.17. The saving act of God in Christ, which we showed is righteousness, is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. Ekpistios refers to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is another way of describing his fidelity to the Father, to the the extent of death by crucifixion. Wherefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name, so that at the mention of the name, Yeshua, every knee, of course, as we know, ultimately and inevitably, genuflex. Every tongue joyously, publicly acknowledges that Yahweh is Yeshua, resulting in the glory of God the Father, or the fact that God becomes all in all on that, at that event. The Unchained Gospel does not simply hone in or home in on the death of Christ alone. It includes the entire event of the Christ. I have determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified has to be understood as not just crucified, but having been crucified that he's raised, ascended, and enthroned. It also presupposes his incarnation and his life for his whole life. And every minute of it is extremely important to us because in that whole life, he was exercising a vicarious obedience for us, exercising a faithfulness. So when we talk about the cross of Christ, we're not, and this is where we're going to have some shocks to the system. The primary idea of the cross is not a punitive judgment on Jesus Christ. It's a transformative building of a new creation. It's a transformative initiation of God's love. And therefore, most important to this gospel, theologically speaking, it reveals a God of unlimited beneficence and benevolence called love. And at the forefront of his essence is not justice, especially retributive justice, but love, unrestricted love, that reveals an unqualified sheer grace toward mankind. So these are some of the features that are going to distinguish the true gospel from its false traditional construal. Will this result in the peeling off of some listeners? Of course it will. Of course it will. It's the risk you run. And are, is there a peeling off? Yes. Is, does this result in a challenge that shakes, rattles, and rolls the church? Yes. Is it on purpose? Yes. On my part, yes. I started January before, in November, deliberately going for the throat in order to shake. Because I think your worst enemy is complacency. I think your worst spiritual enemy is complacency. So... We are in what I call, and what Lonergan used to call, a moving viewpoint. It's not a matter of, oh, I see this, now I'm wrong, I see it here. It's a matter of, now I see it this way, because we're moving, we're moving, we're on the move, we are progressing, we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our, our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now and into the age of the ages. This is a moving viewpoint. And as you keep moving, you keep seeing things from hopefully a better perspective. There are a lot of theologians and a lot of pastors, and some of them are my contemporaries who are stuck in a moment, to quote you 2 the rock band. They're stuck in a moment, and they can't get out of it. And that's a shame because they'll have the repetition of whether it's the evil prosperity gospel, which is evil in every single way. It's tried and found wanting. It's rejected by God. It's cast away. When you talk about prosperity in terms of God's will wanting you to be prosperous all the time in every single way, that cuts across the grain and goes antagonistic to everything Paul teaches about being constantly delivered over to death that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal body. And it creates a bunch of whining, self-satisfied people. Self-pity is one of the worst evils. A self-pitying people who bemoan their tribulations instead of what I'm going to show you, glory in tribulations and troubles and difficulties. You say, are you there yet, preacher? I say, no. But I've had moments. In the Gospel Unchained, there is a radical uprooting of the Adamic ontology. In the other construal of it, Adam is preserved, and Adamic ontology is reconstituted either sacramentally, ritually, moralistically, or in some way through imposed Christian service. We're not here to reconstitute the Adamic ontology called the flesh, but to put it off altogether. We're going to go beyond a mere confessional piety in which people take stock of their actions and confess their sins and think they're spiritual having confessed their sins and living in a, in a whole era of sin consciousness where we are living where we begin with the knowledge that we have the forgiveness of sins and we to put off the old man altogether. You don't have Paul anywhere telling us to confess our sins anywhere, anywhere in the entirety of his Pauline corpus. We do have a lot of times when he says, put off the old man altogether. The flesh and the circumcision of the flesh was when Christ put off the Adamic ontology on the cross. And so... We're not going to just focus in on the death of Christ, but the Christ event, which includes his incarnation, a life lived in vicarious obedience, culminating with his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. The whole thing is salvific because we didn't just die with Christ or be crucified with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. We were ascended with him and we were seated with him in heavenly places. So the whole Christ event is even when we say Christ and him crucified, we are speaking of Christ and him crucified at the center of a Christ event on the left of which is his eternal existence from ages and ages, his eternal existence as God followed by his incarnation at a point in time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, and his incarnation. And therefore, the life that he lived in vicarious obedience, in other words, an obedience that he sort of credits to us, and then that obedience is called faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. And because of his faithfulness, 
God says, my righteous one shall live. The faithfulness there is Christ's faithfulness in Romans 1.17. It isn't you as somebody who believes and then God requires you to live by faithfulness. That means it's not a gospel that tells you how to get in and stay in. You get in by faith. You stay in by faithfulness. If you don't have faithfulness, then there's no guarantee that you're staying in in some systems. Or the eternal security system in which the once saved, always saved, isn't then followed up by accurate teaching of the truth. You have people that are staying in a state of Adamic ontology and saying, it doesn't matter, I'm going to heaven anyways. And it's an, it is a scandalous, unethical Christian living, which isn't Christian living at all. So there's no immediacy of salvation there. So I said all that, which I was not going to say, so I'll get back to what I was saying. The immediacy of this salvation is complemented by its immensity. The immensity of this salvation prompted the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews to say, do not neglect so great salvation. So great. Then he went on to explain that the salvation is all about one who became a little lower than the angels and was crowned with glory and honor and who was raised from the dead, who by the grace of God tasted death for every person that he may bring many sons into glory. That means he tasted death for everybody to bring everybody ultimately into glory because we've already done the comparison in Mark 10:45, the son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many being an understatement for 1 Timothy 2.6, in which the writer there says he gave his life as a ransom for all. Where's the condition in Paul? There's only a condition for salvation in Paul if you misread his gospel. If you try to see the teacher's gospel, which says things like, if you persist in goodness, you'll receive eternal life. And then you see Paul saying you're justified or delivered purely by grace. And then you say, well, let's make a creative tension between the two. There isn't a creative tension between the two. The two are exact opposites. You've got to reject one and accept the other. It's a dialectic of contradictories. So this other construal, which lives till our day, whether Catholic or Protestant, in many cases, it lives to our day in which you try to see a creative tension between Paul, and so you see a condition being faith alone. And it's, there is no condition. There is no condition. There is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which mediates the faithfulness of God to mankind over and out. You say, well, when exactly does a person become regenerate? When God wills to regenerate them. And where are the positive, I'll ask you this question, where are the positive signals that God is obligated to reward with faith? In Saul of Tarsus, who's the prime example of this grace. And God said it himself, uh, or Paul said it himself in 1 Timothy 1.16, or someone speaking on his behalf who knew him well, or someone in the second century, as some say, who are trying to say what Paul said, which is kind of like what we're doing in the 21st century. He made me an example of all those who should believe for eternal life. 
meaning all those who will participate in the faithfulness of Messiah in the future. If he's an example, he never sent up positive signals. God revealed his son to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, at the height of Saul's rebellion. Not when he was saying, I think there's something to this Jesus movement. And so maybe, and so God says, there's positive signals, go get him. Reward him. No, he's still breathing for one reason, to slaughter the people of God. That's when God says, hey, this is a good time to reveal my son to Paul. I think we better call Paul, because I think Paul's going to get this thing squared away. So the immensity of the salvation prompted the writer of the Hebrews to say, so great salvation. And so what we're doing is the same thing in one, th- in one sense. What I'm saying as a pastor is let's not neglect this so great salvation. Let's see it encompassed in Christ. Let's see the gospel unchained. The writer also prefaced this description by exhorting his readers not to neglect it, therefore, this great salvation. So it's my pastoral intention that we as a congregation in Christ do not neglect this so great salvation, nor the immense and immediate soteriology that's in Paul, soteriology that is Christological and Trinitarian. The other construal, the Contractual construal tends to almost downplay the Trinitarian function in salvation and almost becomes a kind of Unitarian thing. But nothing could be further from the gospel unchained. It's a matter of the triune God acting in concert, acting in interlocking ways for a great salvation with a Christocentric focus. So by this immensity, I mean that the saving act of God in Christ and in the spirit encompasses and embraces all of humanity and all of creation. And so we have a great advantage in approaching this situation because we just spent four and a half years in Revelation in which we discovered, I think, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross, which we will now kind of say the universal impact of the Christ event, including his incarnation, his life lived in vicarious obedience, his faithfulness to the extent of death. For by one man's disobedience, the many became or all became sinners under sin. Through one man's obedience... Through one man's disobedience, all came under sin. Through one man's obedience, which again is his faithfulness to the extent of death, the many or all are justified. Justified doesn't mean forensically imputed righteousness. It means gracious deliverance in the context of Psalm 98, as we have seen. I'm going to make that clear again and again and again. This is going to become clear in our old, maybe hackneyed, hackneyed means overused, maybe it's overused, optometrist analogy, where another lens is dropped. You see better here or here, here or here, and you get better and better and better. And this is what's going to happen as we repeat these things and teach this thing until it's seen clearly. I only ask for the courtesy of hearing me out for a while instead of knee-jerk reactions. Now, I, I, I expect knee-jerk reactions because I came right for the throat in November 
and started hitting things that were sacred cows, shooting and blowing them up with Semtex, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I want to apologize for that, though. That's that's just I want you to be shaken or stirred, but not shaken. Let's just say that though stirred in Ezra one five stirred up. So by immediacy, I mean that the triune God is personally involved intimately involved in the believing person that is in the person who has the giftedness of faith God places us in Christ and then he gifts us with faith because faith works by love faith is the way that God can be intimately related to us it's a participated fidelity in Jesus Christ's fidelity the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faithfulness of the son of God Galatians 2:20, profound verse But by its immediacy, I mean, therefore, that the triune God is personally involved in the believing person. That is the person who has the giftedness of faith. So we can say, like the psalmist in 46.1b, again quoting the prophet Brown's prayer Sunday, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. The King James, the Elizabethan language says, a very present help in times of trouble. Times of trouble to me means life as we know it. We glory in tribulation, difficulty. Well, the prosperity gospel says God does not will difficulty or adversity or loss for you. Okay, so by that, you'll never get to know Jesus Christ at all, but you can be pretend happy. Most of these prosperity preachers prosper by shearing the flock. And so they walk across the stage with their prosperity and their happiness and their glowing happiness and say that, you know, it's only going to be prosperity. And, and uh, their prosperity is a result of tapping a whole lot of suckers across the audience. Now, you see, knowing this kinder, gentler Paul does not mean that I'm going to sacrifice or apologize that I was born masculine. Because the whole trend of the age now is to despise your masculinity because masculinity tends to mean that you're a little rougher around the edges as feminine people are, which is women. So I'm not going to be that part of that society. And some of the guys that are teaching these truths that I'm talking about are tending toward this myth that thankfully Tony Sadar and others are moderating at least and balancing out of andropogenic climactic or climatic catastrophe as if it's a settled science. Look at man's doing. He's ruining the planet. So the number one threat against us existentially politicians say is climate change. Yes, it has. I think the temperature has gone up about a half a degree in the past thousand years. I'm exaggerating, but Christians are now jumping on this. That's why I love Tony's latest book review. What was that in the Washington Times? Excellent. Because I'm not going there either. And I see Jesus tipping over some money tables, and I see him being pretty emphatic. I see him not apologizing for his... Because, you see, he was born a male, which means he had testosterone, which means he had some 
rough around the edges more than a woman would have. But now we have college campuses in which there is a gathering of men to apologize for their masculinity. Uh, I don't even want to use the language of an angry male against that. So we may still be quite emphatic about some things. So this immediacy not only means that the three persons of the triune God are present to us and we to him, but it also means that we are in the triune God and the triune God is in us. Using a metaphor of location, Paul describes Christians as being in Christ throughout his epistles. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being with us. And with is a very intimate preposition with Paul. He speaks of the love of God the Father being with us very intimately. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being with all the saints in Corinth. In Christ, then, is a term that refers both to the immensity of this salvation and to its immediacy. Its greatness is both immense and immediate. The immediacy of the salvation is that God literally can elevate our spirit by grace any moment of the day, sometimes by the encouragement of a believer or someone who's also gifted with the fidelity of Christ, who says the right thing at the right time to us. As Psalm 54, 4 says, the Lord is with those who support me. He's empowering those who encourage me. In Christ, the immensity of this salvation and its immediacy. Probably our most famous verse of Paul that arose from our Revelation study, Ephesians 1.10. We have the intention of God that is his unstoppable determination to head up everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ. That's immense. That's the immensity of this salvation. Anakephaliosis. In fact, the Greek says, Anakephaliosastai ta panta ento Christo. We have explored the term anakephaliosis in some detail in our Rev the Book study. And this will no doubt help us a lot in our study called Better Call Paul. This is referring to that which Isaiah said in Isaiah 9.5 in the Septuagint translation, Isaiah 9.6 in most English translations, that calls Jesus Christ, the son that's given to us, the child that's born to us, not only the prince of peace, but also the angel or the messenger, better, of the great intention. The messenger of the great intention. Megales bules angelas. The word intention is bules. That's B-O-U-L-E-S. Bules in the Septuagint passage here. And it means determination. It's stronger than just will, which would be thelema. It's stronger than that. Bules is determination. Bound and determined, as we would say it. It's an unstoppable determination. This is what he uses when he talks about the great intention. That God will, and he uses the same word, a, a variant of it, bules, in Ephesians 1.11, God's unstoppable determination to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. There is something we're supposed to pay attention to. 
The summing up of everything in Christ Jesus demands that we define all of our salvific categories in Christ. We define them as Christological doctrines. It's all about Jesus Christ. So in fact, the word bules or bulema signifies determination on the part of God. This determination must be considered ultimately unstoppable and eschatologically inevitable. The reason? Yahweh himself says in Isaiah 46.10, Septuagint translation, he says, telling beforehand the latter events before they come to pass and they are accomplished together. And I said, Yahweh says, all my counsel shall stand and I will do all things that I have planned, better determined. Panta hosa babulemai poeso. And the word bule is used in Isaiah 46.10. I will do everything I determine. What did you determine to sum up everything in Christ Jesus in the heavens on earth? Is that what he's going to do? Do you want to neglect that fact? The other gospel does. The other construal of Paul's gospel does. The contractual gospel does. The forensic reading does. I'm talking about a mystical reading. And by mystical, I don't mean Rasputin mystical. I mean Paul, who calls his gospel the mystery. And the mystery of God's intent is exactly this. His determination to summarize everything in Christ. And that means to make everything be comprised of him in heavens and earth. In Ephesians 4.10, also known as Laodiceans, more accurately, 4.10. And therefore, he's begun with the church, which isn't a closed community. Again, the unchained gospel redefines the church and the practicality of the church. It also redefines the mission of the church and its missional intention. There are whole affiliations and organizations that are misled into the wrong missional intention. And they present a gospel in which they demand that a stipulation be met on the part of the people instead of just preaching this glorious gospel. And if God is pleased, many times God is pleased to reveal his son to people while somebody's preaching this gospel. But it's not a matter of human persuasion. In fact, Paul said about this other gospel, this persuasion is not good. It's not from God. So again, planned in Isaiah 46.10 is the verbal form of bule or boluo. God unequivocally declares that he will do all that he determined to do. And Paul says that what he determined to do is sum up everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ. Therefore, in Christ, that phrase refers to the immensity of the salvation that God enacts via the faithfulness of the Son of God and the power of the Spirit. Both Christ's faithfulness and the power of the Spirit becomes immediately intimate to us once we're in Christ because we live by the fidelity of the Messiah and we are filled with the Spirit. We may walk by the Spirit. The Spirit actually pours out in our hearts the love of God, the Spirit who's given to us. In Romans 5 5 in fact we're going to get there now we'll close with a, a little look at the text in Romans chapter 5 but first we'll go to 1 116 and then 3 just to show you a lead-in 
So again, but let me give you, as you're turning, an excellent example of this immediacy of salvation determined by the word in Christ is Paul's own autobiographical experience where he says during his fool's resume, I knew a man in Christ. There's the immediacy of that salvation. He knows himself as a man in Christ, not in Adam. But in Christ, Second Corinthians twelve two, he refers to himself here of himself here autobiographically. Then he goes on to speak of the experience he had when he was caught up into the third heaven. So my point is to note that the immediacy of this use of in Christ, oida anthropon en Christo, I knew a man in Christ. That's how we know ourselves: the immediacy of salvation. A man or a woman in Christ is a person who has been placed into Christ at a time that is of God's own choosing. He or she is a person whose identity, security, and destiny is now in Christ, who is the image of God, and not in Adam, in whom that image is distorted and dysfunctional. So, let's look at Romans 1.16 and review to get to the lower blade data in earnest for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He is alluding to Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, because there God says, I will place a foundation stone in Zion tried and tested. That stone isn't something it's somebody it's Christ. So the gospel itself is Christ's manifestation. So that's what Paul is alluding to. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He that believes in him shall not be ashamed. He that believes in him shall not be ashamed. Retrospectively, now that I'm granted the gift of faith, I look back and I'm not ashamed of being in Christ at all. It's a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. To whom is this? In other words, who sees it this way? Who sees the gospel as the power of God to salvation? Not someone outside of Christ. They don't know their situation. Someone in Christ. Therefore, what he's saying here, it's a matter of perspective. It is the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to, or in the view of everyone who has faith, that is, those who participate in the fidelity of the righteous one, Christ, the Jew first, and also the Greek. We're going to follow up on that phrase because this teacher puts the Jew first and then the pagan. Paul puts them all together. In verse 17, for in it, the dikaiosune, or the righteousness, which we've defined from Psalm 98, where he alludes in Psalm 97 also, the same wording is used. In it, the dikaiosune, which is the saving act of God in Christ, the right thing for the monarch to do is to rescue his people unconditionally. A president protects his people. If he's got the power to protect his people from an assault, he doesn't go around to each household and say, do you deserve protection? Have you paid your taxes? Have you met the stipulations of a contract? Okay, then you're not being protected and you'll be assaulted by the enemy and destroyed. Now, the righteous act of the king is to rescue his people without condition. The righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel. But it's revealed from faithfulness. Apocalypto is the word, revealed apocalyptically from faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness. Two, 
faithfulness, which is participation of that faithfulness by the saints in Christ. Just as it is written, Paul's key text, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one, in a Christological rendition of the unchained gospel, this righteous one isn't someone who believes and therefore is forensically justified. The righteous one is Christ whose faithfulness took him to the point of death. And this is why God says the righteous one, Christ, will live, meaning be resurrected because of his fidelity, because of his faithfulness. That's the determining passage. Faith can mean trust. It can mean belief. It can mean fidelity. It can mean faithfulness. It means faithfulness here. Ek pistios means that this righteousness, this deliverance that comes to people, a better word than justification, this gracious deliverance comes to us through the faithfulness of the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. John says that outrightly. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus Christ. What's the gospel all about? Jesus Christ. What is the false teacher's gospel all about? Man's earning, man's deserving. What is the construal of justification theory all about since the Reformation and since Augustine all the way back there and other parts of Western culture, which has infested our understanding of the gospel? It's a matter of a stipulation met by man. When he finds out he can't obey the law, he despairs. He knows he's courting hell forever and ever. So he gets so afraid and he's falling apart. And so the gospel comes and says, well, God, thankfully, God lowered the bar. All you got to do is believe. That sounds simple. But you tell somebody, believe. It'll be the hardest thing in the world for them. to. How are they going to just believe something that they haven't seen? Well, there's lots of witnesses that testified to it in the scripture. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me. What's the scripture? You see, you can't be told something that's outside of your historical and social context, outside of your time, outside of the space you occupy, that's a miraculous event, and then suddenly believe it. So that's not really so much as lowering the bar. You're actually put into another. You're gone from the fire, the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. So we're talking about this is the hardest thing for people to do because they think that freedom means freedom of choice. The big mistake made by the original couple in Eden, the choice, they believed freedom to be choice. Freedom isn't a matter of a freedom of choice. It is a matter of response. It's a matter of the freedom of obedience and faithfulness which freedom is only realized in Christ. The hardest thing we're going to do away with is people's concepts of freedom, which ultimately does away with authority, responsibility, and a lot of other things. So, just that is written, the righteous one, that's Christ, will live because of his fidelity. Because he was obedient to the extent of the cross, as he writes in Philippians 2.8, God raised him from the dead. The righteous one's fidelity leads to obedience to the extent of death, leads to resurrection. That's where Paul starts the unchained gospel in Romans 4.25. He said, it's not all about Abraham as the paradigm for believing unto justification. It's all about the one who was delivered, like Isaac, over to death for our sins 
and then resurrected for our gracious deliverance, our liberation, or our justification, if you want to use that poorly chosen word. That's why you have a passage, well, it's not really connecting, but let's look at it anyways, because it does follow. Romans 3.28, that's why Paul says, Paul says this, he's speaking in 3.28, for my fixed position, please note the dialectic going on here, is that a man is justified, and by that he means delivered from sin and death into Christ and life, as he finds, as we find out that justification is the justification of life or the liberation of life. My fixed position is that a man is justified or delivered from sin and death as powers through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. He doesn't say through faith. He, it, remember what I said in Romans 1.17. What determines the use of this faith, ekpistios, is Romans 1.17, where Paul first reveals it to be the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So whenever you see that word, the faith, or faithfulness, or pistios, or ekpistios, you're looking at the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So Romans 5.1 has to begin... Therefore, being justified or delivered or liberated by the faithfulness of Christ. That's what's understood there. We have peace, and peace, shalom, is a veritable synonym for messianic salvation. It's just like saying we have salvation. We have peace. Irene. Shalom is a messianic salvation or what we would call a Christological deliverance. So by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which comes from the last verse in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our trespasses and resurrected for our deliverance. Therefore, in 5.1, there probably shouldn't even be a chapter division, being justified by or delivered by what? That faithfulness of the Son to be delivered over and then raised up. We have peace, salvation with God. Peace with God. Not only that, we have access into this grace wherein we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, the confident expectation of sharing the glory of God because it's certain to us. Not only that, we boast in our difficulties, knowing that adversity produces perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope isn't disappointed, going back to Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Then he goes on to say, the love I'm talking about isn't the love that dies for a good person. The love that dies for a righteous person. The love by which a soldier lays his life down for a fellow soldier. This is the love of God that was demonstrated in that while we were yet hostile to God, Christ died. Let me ask you the question, anticipating a future message. Where's the condition? If you weren't even alive... And God saw the whole human race, including you, as ungodly, in Romans 4, 5, as hostile to the very love that did this, and yet Christ died for you then. Where's the condition you had to meet? Especially before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. 
What condition could you meet in the womb? What condition could you meet afterwards? I'm just dropping in to see what condition your condition is in. Now, Paul then asks, says in 3.28, my fixed position over and against this teacher that we're going to see more and more as we disentangle that thing, which is the hardest job I have right now. The heavy lifting has been done by D.A. Campbell, but I'm doing my own lifting for you. Paul, for my fixed position, Romans 3.28, is that a man is justified or delivered from sin and death into Christ in life through the faithfulness apart from through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. Is God the God only of the Jews, he asks? Is he not also of the Gentiles? The teacher then speaks, and he's forced to admit, yes, of the Gentiles too, of the pagans also. And the complete Jewish Bible once again picks up this dialectic because they translate it because, as you will admit, So Paul's speaking in verse 30, because as you, teacher, will admit, God is one. He has to admit that God is one. That's the Shema. Shema Israel. The Lord our God is one, Lord. So Paul says, you are, you have to admit that God is one. So there's not a God of the Jews and a God of the Gentiles. There's one God who's God of the Jews and the Gentiles. So you want to talk about no favoritism. Let's not apply it to no favoritism in terms of retributive judgment. Let's term it in terms of no favoritism in the showing of mercy to all. So Paul's taking on this teacher before he gets to Rome. God is one who delivers the circumcision from the source of faithfulness or out from faithfulness, ekpistios, let's see where it's determined to be. What faithfulness? The faithfulness of Christ, not the faith of a sinner incapable of making such a decision and fulfilling such a stipulation. So again, he says, because, as you will admit, God is one who delivers the circumcision, Jews, from faithfulness. That is, out from the source of faithfulness. And the uncircumcision... Through the same faithfulness, that is, of Messiah. No wonder the Samaritans said, we believe that you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. They knew. John 4.42. So in closing, Paul concludes, do we then abolish Torah, the law, through the faithfulness of Messiah? Perish the thought. On the contrary. We affirm Torah. In other words, Torah, the law, has the main objective of attestation to this Messiah and his faithfulness. The Torah also refers to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. It's a code word for the entirety of it. And it's sad that the word namas is used all the time for law in Romans because he's intending the Torah. This teacher believes that you have to have a comprehensive following of the Torah to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to then follow the comprehensive teachings of Torah. Paul says, but we, if God delivers both Jews and Gentiles through the faithfulness of Messiah, does that do away with Torah? No, it makes Torah 
It affirms Torah, not as the thing you do to be saved, but as the attestation of the faithfulness of this Messiah. These are all testifying of me, Jesus said. The prophecy, the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The purpose of Torah is attestation, testifying of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. So if we say that people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are justified or delivered from sin and death into life and glory by faithfulness of Messiah, are we doing away with the law or are we affirming the law in its primary activity of attesting to the faithfulness of this Messiah, most notably and dramatically demonstrated in Habakkuk 2.4. The saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypto. It's being, it's an apocalypse in our time. From faithfulness to faithfulness. Faithfulness to faithfulness means that Christ's faithfulness gets right into the church when the church gets into Christ, when people get into Christ, so that it totally rules out the idea of faith as a stipulation or a condition. And this is the main sticking point. I've already seen it with people in our own church. And I don't mind that. That's good. I want that. I want that back and forth. I want that dialectic. I don't want you to be sure all of a sudden just because I said it. I want you to be convinced by the Holy Spirit yourself and convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ yourself that this is a gospel that is unconditional. It's covenantal, not contractual. It's mystical, not forensic. It's transformative, not retributive. It's participative and not conditioned upon stipulations of man. It's Christocentric, not anthropocentric. It has to do with the faithfulness of Christ, not the desert or deserving of man. It has to do with the Torah being that which testifies of this gospel and attests of Jesus Christ's faithfulness rather than as a rule book to follow either for getting in or staying in. I hope you understand some of these distinctions now a little bit more. You see a little better, a little better. We'll see better and better till you have 2020, some of you even 2010, when it's all said and done. You say, we never got to Romans 5. If you think carefully through this message, I did go from Romans 5, 1 through 5, and in a paraphrase. So that's enough. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity, because we know that we are being liberated and have been liberated accordingly by faithfulness, the faithfulness of the righteous one. Therefore, we have peace with you in the sense of messianic salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his fidelity. What an anticipation we have to see him and therefore to have, in Old Testament parlance, a clear view of the ark. Bring us to the position in our moving viewpoint where we have the horizon before us, at the center of which is the arc of the testimony, the Christ event which splits the Jordan that we may go into this promised land after 38 years of plugging toward this goal. This I ask in Jesus' name.